0: Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. This is not Fran Chismar. This is uh your other host, Tom Knesick, and this is going to be episode 113. So, we have a little different start today because uh because Fran is out for for other reasons and uh so I'm catching up in the the episode uh episode game here. So, now we're going to be even on how many episodes we did. Uh really the world has tried to keep us from putting out a podcast this week, but we called in a, a substitute host, and I'm going to introduce him now. So this is actually my brother Steve Knezic, who's going to be my co-host for the day, and I'm really going to interview him. I don't know if this is going to be a meet the guest episode or a buzz episode. Uh, I got to figure out how to edit this <laughs> when we're all done, but um, but it's going to be a good time because Steve brings a completely different perspective of the nursery and uh, in our seed propagation, or our, excuse me, our seed production fields. Than Fran and I do. So, Steve, why don't you uh, really tell everyone
1: who you are a little bit? What's going on? This is uh, Steve Knezik, Pinelands Nursery. Some people call me Nature Boy Steve. I love catching animals and just being outside. Um, I am our seed. um, I manage all our seed fields here at the nursery. So, on a daily basis, you can find me out running a tractor, cultivating. I'll be out planting, a lot of weeding, a lot of hoeing. um, But yeah, it's a, it's a fun job for me. We just got this awesome combine, a plot combine to harvest all of our seeds. I'm really excited about that. And we're going to talk more about that combine later. Cause I was really excited about it as well.
0: And, uh, but I figured it would be fun because like I said, Steve's my brother. We've interviewed my parents on the show before who started Pinelands Nursery. Uh, I just thought it'd be fun to talk about what it was like growing up on a native plant nursery, um, Which, to be honest, when I was young, I didn't realize it was, I didn't realize native a native plant nursery was that all that different from a regular plant nursery. It was just kind of a big playground to us.
1: For me, yeah, I have a lot of stories about growing up here. I can remember being younger, and we had the wet frames with uh, all sorts of wetland plants growing there, and I was infatuated (laughs) with them, just catching frogs. Yeah,
0: wet frame is basically for if you don't know what it is, is we use um, two by fours and basically build. The same process of above above ground pool. will take sand and level it out, and then we'll line it with plastic, and you fill it with water. So all your wetland plants, like your picker weed and arrow arum and duck potato, those kind of things, will grow in those wet frames because that's how they grow in nature. But they're also basically a
1: makeshift pond. They're, they're, <laughs> the, best, they're the best. They're the best spots to catch frogs and tadpoles and all sorts of stuff. There's a. They're a cool little ecosystem. So when I was in diapers, there's everyone tells stories about how I'd be out there. I'd catch one frog with my left hand, catch another one with my right hand, and then I'd see another one, and I'd be looking. You know, I wouldn't have a hand to yeah, grab what, it with. What do you do when you have two frogs in your hands well, already, you gotta, and you want to catch <laughs> a third frog? You got to <laughs> pop one in your mouth. And everyone said, <laughs> "Pop one in my mouth." I'd catch the the third frog, and I'd have the legs squiggling out of my mouth. But yeah, yeah, those are that's just one of the many stories of growing up on the farm. Um, yeah,
0: for for a long time, it was. Uh, now we grew up in the the nineties. Um, before you had a lot of, uh, well, basically the internet wasn't really around yet. It was the time where you'd take your bike out and ride to a friend's house and. Our parents,
1: been... our parents would lock, lock up the uh, cartoon <laughs> channel. Yeah. All we... we could watch was discovery channel or just go play outside.
0: But yeah, it was basically, Hey, go play outside. And when it's time for dinner, we'll ring the bell on the front of the house and we could be a couple hundred yards away and still hear the bell and know it was time to come back. Uh, sometimes we didn't always want to come back cause we were having fun. But, uh, yeah, it was always fun just being outside. Um, I remember we'd climb greenhouses a lot. We'd go in up in our pole barn and, like, climb in the rafters and yeah. do all that kind we of stuff. Bi- when
1: we were selling biologs, we'd have the most fun with the uh, biologues, running up and down. Our babysitters would take us into the uh, biologue barn. We'd be running around there. Yeah, and then
0: uh, I think I was probably in, like, third grade, So you, and you're, uh, you're two grades younger than me. And that's when they dug the irrigation ponds. Oh, yeah. That was and, um, the best. Whenever it was, I think it was Hurricane Floyd. Uh, it was shortly after we dug one of the other irrigation ponds. I was probably like fourth or fifth grade at that point. And uh, I remember we took like sleds and cardboard boxes because we had all the, I don't want to call them dredge spoils, but all the big pile of soil that where the pond was. And uh, and we were sledding down that into this freshly dug pond and, you know, torrential downpour rainstorm because we, we were all from school because of the, the Rain was so bad, there's so much flooding from this hurricane, and um, I remember doing that a lot, or I shouldn't say a lot, but we'd go swimming in the pond, we'd fish in the pond. Our dad would have yeah. us
1: help, we thought it was fun because we were mucking around the pond, we'd have us help planting in the pond mm-hmm. when we were younger.
0: Yep, yep, cleaning duckweed out of the pond that was another thing we used to do a lot, and then uh,
1: then I'm trying to remember some of the other stuff, we would go camping down there, yeah, um, yeah. On one of the peninsulas, we'd go camping. I can remember the dogs were barking one night and they ended up, they ended they, up attacking one of our goats. Yeah, that we, we had. had some pet <laughs> goats. This
0: was a, another fun story from when we were kids where, uh, where, I shouldn't say, well, the fun story was when it was my mom's, it was Mother's Day, and uh, my dad got two baby goats, like two baby pygmy goats, and uh, for my mom, for Mother's Day, <laughs> for whatever reason, he thought that was a good idea. I don't think she enjoyed, she liked it, but how could she say no to... Two little kids running up with baby pygmy goats in their arms. And, uh, but then, yeah, that was the dogs were barking because they had gotten into the the goat pen and chased the goats out and, and chased them all around. And they were barking like crazy. But yeah, so it was just a fun place where we really grew up outside. There's the woods behind our house. Um, I've mentioned before, I used to hear Bob White Quail calling
1: in there all the time. All the time. We had Bob White Quail everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, and that's no longer the case.
0: It was just a really cool place to grow up. But at the time, like I mentioned, I didn't know what we were growing here was anything special compared to
1: any I agree, other nursery. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. It wasn't really until I don't know freshman year of high school almost for me that I I really kind of grasped the concept of native plants and understood what we were growing. And every every day from then on, I realized how important they are. Yeah, it was uh it was probably around the same time for me. But
0: even then, it was like okay, well this is. It has a purpose, but so do all these other plants that like vegetable plants still have their purpose and and uh, which I still believe that, too. But uh, your landscape plants, I still didn't think, oh, this is something that mixes where you have landscape plants and native plants could be the same thing. I thought there was two separate things where hey, nature is here and uh, and your home is here and they're still kind of separate. The restoration nope, nope, stuff is nope. not happening at home, and uh, and that's definitely changed for me. I think for both of us, um, as we've really started to work here and gotten to work with a lot of the the people that you've heard on this podcast that we've gotten to become friends with over the years and gotten to work with over the years, uh, as they've kind of enlightened us as uh, as we've gone through that process and we know where these plants are going and seeing what they can do and realized, oh, you can do
1: this at home too. So it's kind of it's kind of a side note, but one quick little story when we started growing these seed fields I always talk about this one the abundance of insects that come to these fields but my mom would always talk about bluebirds and indigo buntings and these birds and i we rarely rarely saw them but after we started planting these seed fields it was amazing like we I've probably 10 10 bird boxes that are filled with uh, bluebirds right now I see indigo buntings all the time um, I saw a blue gross beak today we have 100 Hundreds, we were just talking about it the other day, hundreds of uh, goldfinches. But yeah, which pose problems in a way because it's they're awesome. Eating, they're eating <laughs> all my seeds. <laughs> they're eating
0: our, our, our profits. Each each seed is like a tenth of a penny or probably even less, like a hundredth of a penny. But when they eat millions and millions and millions of seed, it adds up to an actual tangible cost. Um, but we'll, we'll touch more on that later, as too. Uh, so growing up, even more, you mentioned you realized what native plants were yeah. and thought they were important when you were a freshman in high school. What happened then? How did your interaction with the nursery change then? Um, I remember we just basically worked here on the summers, and it kind of resented it a little bit, at least from my
1: perspective. I mean, we were, it was, when we were working here in the summers, we were down in the trenches. We were working with um, kind of our foreman. He's like our big brother, Paul. He would he would work us hard. We'd be building greenhouses and mm-hmm. doing kind of more the the maintenance and mechanic sides of things. We weren't really working with the plants as mm-hmm. much.
0: And that was by design from our parents because mm-hmm. – my dad, while he's a really great naturalist, was not very mechanical. He, like, he could change his own oil and do basic mechanical stuff, I, even probably in some intermediate mechanical stuff. But he couldn't go and rebuild an engine. I still can't. You yeah. might be able to. But he couldn't do that stuff. But we had a great mechanic who could teach us that stuff. And then Steve mentioned our, our uh, facilities manager, Paul. He knew how to do all kinds of stuff. And it was, hey, they can teach you things that I can't teach you so why don't you go work with them? Cause you'll learn quite a bit from them. And, um, so yeah, I went, but it was 104 and we're out on these gravel fields, pounding greenhouse steak after greenhouse steak, which there's two parts to that job too. When you're putting in a greenhouse is you, if you want it to be perfectly straight, there's some people who don't care. We call we call
1: Paul, Mr. Perfect. This is Mr.
0: Perfect. So everything had to be perfectly straight. Everything had to be perfectly lined up at, at the same exact height. Everything was level. Um you, I go to a lot of green or nurseries and greenhouses and I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> everything's kind of wobbly and not aligned perfect." But well, everything we did here, we wanted to make sure it was perfect cuz we had to look at it for the next realistically 15-20 years. Um and uh yeah, so there's two jobs on when you're putting in a greenhouse and one was to hold the stake and have a level on it to make sure it was perfect, going perfectly level and vertical in the ground. And the other one was swinging the sledgehammer, and uh, sometimes the one who was holding the stake it was in harm's way. Depending on who <laughs> was sling, swinging the sledgehammer, there was definitely a couple nicked yeah. hands and thumbs and toes and and that kind of stuff. But it was it was a lot of that was probably the harder job because you're swinging nine pounds over your head, hit after hit after hit, just keep going and going and going. But those get, summers,
1: those summers, we learned a lot. Yeah. Um, going back to you know. Growing up on the nursery and when we really started learning about native plants, I can remember going on, we had a a nursery in upstate New York Mm -hmm. in Gloversville. And I can remember going on trips with our dad up there and it'd be just the most annoying thing. It'd be like, all right, what's that tree? Be pointing trees out to us and then, you know, tell us a little bit about them. And the whole way up, he'd be talking about all these trees, quizzing us. way down i know it it, it was really annoying but it's just trying to get some sleep on the car i
0: wish i paid more attention then because i'd be a lot better at my tree identification now it was really doing it even just when you're taking a walk through the woods can be hard if you don't know your trees it's really hard when you're going 65 miles an hour down the highway and it's like what's that red one well which which red okay well there's another one there another one there and yeah, that was that was pretty tricky, but it's something I took for granted at the time, and I wish I paid more attention to now. Um, and just
1: just growing up, you know, he was always kind of quizzing us and talking to us about uh, talking to us about trees and plants and different different species like that. And then going on once I got into college, I went to um, the Ohio State University and I studied forestry and wildlife there, and I was way way ahead of everybody when it came to tree and plant ID. Mm-hmm. I think I got. The lowest grade I got on a test was maybe a 95. I was usually getting 100, if not all the bonus questions right. And now yeah. I think I'm a better identifier than my dad. And it's funny you said that because I now I was an agricultural
0: business major, but I had a lot of friends that were in a lot of like landscape maintenance or turf grass management. It was a good school where I went for turf grass and and that kind of stuff. And but they would a lot of them would have to take uh, like a woody plants identification class. And I knew more than they did a lot of times, even though they're halfway through the semester, they're asking me to to convert Latin to to common names and all that. And I was able to do it. I remember my roommate would ask me all the time. And I I don't think he did well in that class. But uh, I think he might have dropped out of the class before he got done. But, um, yeah, that was something, like I said, I took it for granted at the time, and I wish I knew more now. But so you went to Ohio State. You studied forestry and wildlife. What made you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to come back to the
1: nursery. What were
0: what? I guess I should.
1: Back there's a up. few things. What was your original plan going in for that degree? There's a few things. I always knew I wanted to kind of work outside with my hands, but and work helping the environment. And there's really not that much money in that field. I realized that during college. You you do this because it's a passion, and um, obviously I don't want to say money is a big thing. But coming back to the nursery was an opportunity to give back to the environment and work hard and make a decent living while helping the environment.
0: It was an opportunity to have, have it and, both ways and, really,
1: and to, you know, my continue my dad's legacy with mm-hmm. the nursery. You know, he's, he, you know, taken a step off a ledge to try and get this thing to work. And, you know, it'd be really cool to keep this thing going is what my mentality was back then.
0: Yeah. It's, um, and that's, I kind of felt the same thing was, Hey, this is an opportunity where wherever I wanted to go in life, this was a better launching off point than starting from square one, um, and I've cons- contemplated that back and forth and say, was it really or is it? But I've it found a new path going this way for sure, and um, and it was one thing where so many people would would like just kill to be in the position we were in, yeah. And then it was really, are we not going to take advantage of this? Um, we have something where it's it's already puts us. A couple pegs ahead and um why wouldn't we use that to our advantage and then really try and build like grow a business where we could give back even more? Uh I joke around and say we could be doing other things. We could be selling products that are are killing people or vices or there's so many other jobs. This is a job where what you're selling, you can really I, feel good
1: about. I feel like we could turn our nursery into selling ornamentals and we might even be more successful than what we're doing now. But I love selling native plants. Mm-hmm. I love creating habitat. I love seeing the insects and the birds and everything be attracted to our, our habitat and, and the plants that we sell. Yeah. So you
0: can't and decided to come back to the nursery. How'd you fall into the role that? It, I don't fall isn't the, probably the right word because that sounds like you just kind of fell. It fell you fell into it because it was what was available, which it kind of was in a way, mm-hmm. but it's um when you work for a smaller family business, you end up doing a lot of stuff. And when there's something that needs to be done, a lot of times they're just like, okay, well I know you're doing this, this and this, but let's add this too what made it so that you've got into the, the seed production aspect.
1: Um, well it was honestly, I was working with Glenn over the summers and, um, Throughout college, I'd help him out. and We and be...
0: Glenn's our our propagator at the nursery, so he's the one who's going out collecting a lot of seed. And Glenn used to and then, uh, Glenn started
1: the whole seed operation. My dad it was my dad's idea, and Glenn implemented mm-hmm. all the. Um, he we grew the plants here at the nursery, and we leased a field and we threw some plants out in the field and we started harvesting seed off of them. And he showed me how to identify the plants. How when when the and I shouldn't we can't give Glenn all the credit because Raul, who was Glenn's right hand man, he really showed me a lot. Um, when the seeds were ripe. Um, how to plant them, how to care for them. And I, I really gravitated to the farming aspect of native plants, not the nursery and container side. Mm. And You know, hopping on the tractor, I learned how to cultivate. I learned how to, I started planting. Glenn showed me how to drive the operate the tractor and run the planting crew. Mm. And, you know, from then I just kind of fell in love with that job and I took off with it. And um, every year I feel like I've been improving and improving and it's new for us and just growing row crop native plants is new in general. There's no book on how to do it. It's not like corn or soybeans or tomatoes or strawberries where you really have to um, keep detailed notes and figure out new things every day. And that's what keeps me going, wakes me up in the morning every day.
0: Yeah. In the eastern half of the United States, there's not, there's, there's plenty of growers that do this, but compared to like auto, auto dealers or even just regular farms, we're probably talking definitely less than a um, realistically, there's probably – it's hard for me to put an exact number. If you said it getting into over, like, 40, 50 acres of uh, native plant field production, uh, I'd probably say there's less than 30 producers definitely along the East Coast. If you go east of the Mississippi, there's probably a handful more because there's quite a few in Illinois and Wisconsin. and um, But there's very few really really big ones
1: and we 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 have to give credit to other seed companies like Ernst and and we were just with Roundstone. they're the ones who brought up the the um the new combine for us but you know these companies helped us out and got us kickstarted and gave us little bits and pieces of information along the way but a lot of it is just learning learning along the way and I'm lucky to have you know the nursery is the backbone you know because we're able to sell plants they were able to fund this project I was able to screw up and with mm-hmm. all the screw-ups that I've had, I've learned so much um, about growing all these native plants. Yeah, and it's uh, it's been a learning experience for
0: sure, just because, like Steve said, there's no, I think there is actually a book on how to do it, but it's one university publication. And a lot of it's just learned and acquired knowledge. And like Steve said, uh, the folks at Ernst Seed, they gave us a ton of tips and, and pointers. And um, same thing with the folks at Roundstone. And it's nice to have other people in the industry that you can call up on the phone and, and we've gotten to be friends with these people too. So you have a conversation. How's your family? How's, how's mm-hmm. your kids, that kind of stuff. And then say, Hey, I'm, I'm having trouble cleaning this seed or growing this seed. Um, do you Can you mind shedding any tips on, on what you guys do and, uh, and having more of a, a personal relationship than just a business relationship. So that's a really good point. Cause they're like, it's, but that being said, Steve's, learning a lot of this on his own, too. And no one wants to give... Yeah, they'll give you... Your grandma will give you 90% of the recipe on how to make her chocolate chip cookies, but she's not going to give you the whole thing because she will, still wants her chocolate chip cookies to be the best. Yep. So it's figuring out that last 10% and then works, what works for us. And that's where Steve's really been doing a great job um, with that, uh, with growing the native seed here. So why don't you explain a little bit about that whole process? So what? how does...
1: When you want to start growing plants for seed, where does it start? Well, it starts out in the wild. You have to go find your seed source. Um, a lot of the species we get—I don't know if I should say it out loud. Can I say where we get most of them? Um, like where in the? Well, we we get we source a lot of our um, species from the pine barrens. So, for instance, I'll say little blue stem. So we have a spot for a little blue stem that we collect it in the pine barrens, and then from there we'll take it to the nursery and we'll clean that little bit of seed and get that New Jersey. Um, pine barrens, little blue stem provenance, going, and uh, from there our propagator Glenn and Susan they'll they'll grow it out into little propagation trays, and then Susan will take it and put it into plug trays. And once it's ready in plug trays, we just planted the little blue stem the other day. That's why I'm using it as an example. So from there, once it's in the uh, the plug trays, we'll take it out to the field. We'll get we got it's got to be about six inches tall to run Mm -hmm. through the um, transplanter machine. We got to prep a field and. I'll usually do a rotation of cover crops to keep the weeds down. And then right before we're going to plant, I'll start three weeks before we're going to plant, I'll start working up the field, get the soil nice and fluffy. And then I'll run the transplanter through with a crew of three or four people. And uh, after that, you just got to irrigate weed and sometimes a little bit of fertilizer and then from there, we'll start harvesting the seed after mm-hmm. after growing seeds. I make it yeah. sound easy, but it's a lot of weeding. The I'm weeding. Gonna,
0: I'm going to back up just one second to talk about this transplanter and how amazing agricultural technology is. Because this is not – it's a very complex machine, but it's a very primitive machine. This is a technology that's yeah, probably yeah. been around, I would guess, since like the 1930s, once they – Steel became mm-hmm. more common. It might be older than that. I could describe the transplanter. Yeah, kind so of
1: walk through what it might look it's like. It's a double transplanter with an 18-inch space in the middle, and it's wheel driven. It has a wheel that is connected to a chain, and as the as you drag it behind the tractor, the um, it has cups, six cups, and the cups will rotate through this chain. So this yeah, this wheel turns. It turns the chain, and that yep. turns the cups, and it and the cups will drop a plant down through a tube, and where the in between the tube is a, uh, I, I guess you call it like a little mini plow. And yeah, it's, it's
0: like a little wedge that cuts through that the cuts soil. It cuts through the
1: soil and creates a void, and it's the plant will drop into that wedge, into the void, and there's a packing plate behind it. you got to make sure you have p- pressure, the right pressure on the packing plate, and the packing plate will fold the soil around the plug and seal it together. In a perfect world, some of the plantings and some of the species can be a disaster, but some of them can go, go through the machine really, really well. It's a tobacco planter, I believe. Yeah, it basically just opens
0: up a little slit in the ground, and then the plant drops in, and and then it closes it up right behind it. Uh, but like Steve said, it's not always perfect, so you have to have someone who's kind of in charge of quality control, going yep. behind it, filling in the misses, and sometimes a plug's laying on the ground, and, they and have that, to dig that could a be the hardest.
1: it and... could be the easiest job, or it could be <laughs> the hardest job. So, oh. but it's
0: it's pretty amazing some of the agriculture technology that's out there, um, that's been around for for almost a hundred years now or over a hundred years in some cases Uh, and that it's still used today and it's still effective.
1: I'd say definitely the hardest part of my job right now is is weeding and um, we use cultivators. I'm trying to do no-till right now we have a Truax seeder so I'm using cover crops and I'm trying to um, no-till seed through the Truax seeder. Shout out to Eileen Miller if anyone knows Eileen from she, the South Jersey Resource Conservation District, we've been able right? to use the Truax because of them. So thank you. Um, so we're experimenting with that, and uh, but yeah, the weeds are just the worst. We're out there hoeing a lot, and occasionally we use a herbicide, which I don't like to use. I don't know, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's uh, and like we've talked about in I think it
0: was uh, one of our business of native plants roundtables, probably both of them. It can be a necessary evil, especially when it comes to this stuff. Is if you don't control the weeds, not only when it comes to seed especially, not only are you going to have a lesser crop because of weed pressure,
1: the weeds are, are sucking up. We'd have to have a crew of, um, yeah. you know, 10, 15 people all the time hoeing on hot summer days, yeah. which is what we do a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, but those weeds are, are taking up water, taking up mm-hmm. nutrients that could be going to these native plants. So you're kind of stunting the native plants because of the weeds. And then um, then on top of it, when you go to harvest, if there's weed seed in the seed, now you're spreading that weed yeah, seed elsewhere. To and contaminant. Uh, depending on the, sometimes the species are considered noxious weeds, and uh, like foxtail. And a, a lot of them, there's some that are native and there's some that are non-native. But um, And then if those are in there, then you can't sell the crop at all. It's That's why the
1: weed control can be is is probably the most important process. It's the hardest and most important, something I'm, um, herbicide use is something I'm very cognizant of. It's something I don't like to do, but there's, I'm, I've been trying a lot of new things like direct seeding with the Truax seeder, and then uh, I'd really like to design, I'm sure someone's already done it, but I want to do wood chips. I want to get wood chips that um, you could put in a trailer, and you could dispense them right out into the roast um, to suppress weeds. Yeah, I know when we were talking to the guys from Roundstone Seed yesterday, they use
0: uh, for some crops, they'll use a, a biodegradable plastic that and it's similar to like a vegetable planner, I think it is a vegetable. That could planner. be a
1: topic for your next um, podcast. Like what, what what's better to use the use of roundup or plastic that is going to mm-hmm. get stuck in your soil? Is biodegradable plastic a chemical? What is what is it made I of? I think
0: I think they have some now that are made from natural materials. Okay, but they did have some that were just photodegradable, so they turn into little pieces of plastic and go away. And then you had some that were can stayed plastic, and then you roll it up at the end of the year and throw it away. Yeah. But they've uh, now come out with a pretty high-quality biodegradable plastic that is made of of natural materials to make this plastic, as far as I understand. But they'll use that, and um, and they basically said it helps control the weeds. That first year when the plants are still small, they're freshly transplanted, they put it down with a, a vegetable transplanter, which is very similar to the mm-hmm. tobacco plant that Steve uses, except it rolls this plastic down too, punches a hole in the plastic, and plants the plant in it. That's something
1: I need to explore more into is uh, growing through plastic. Um, Like I said, the mulch, I've been using mulch and cover crop. The cover crops have turned out great this year. I've been doing rotations of sorghum, rye, buckwheat um, throughout a year and a half span. I've noticed the the blocks that I've done that with have much less uh, Mm -hmm. weed competition. It's really
0: good for weed pressure. And then it also, when you don't have a crop in that section, uh, or a native plant crop in that section, it provides you with, Um, uh, soil sustainability. So you're not losing soil to wind erosion primarily, a little bit of water erosion where we are too. But uh, so when it rains or when you get a windstorm, if the soil's bare, that soil's traveling. But Mm -hmm. if you have that cover crop on there, you have some plants that are holding that soil in place and you'll still lose some, but you're not going to lose nearly as much. And that's one of the reasons that's really important. Um, So you mentioned that you do a lot of hoeing. What are some of the other things that you do to maintain the crops and make sure... Uh, that you're gonna be able to be have a good harvest, and you're not gonna have a lot of weeds, and they're gonna be in good shape by the end of the year.
1: Let's see. So um, we'll usually cultivate the the best time to attack the weeds are when they're young. So you get your transplants right in the ground, and then you're gonna want to do some. That's when you want to do a lot of your hoeing. But then there's still some weeds that get through the cracks. So right now there's a lot of mare's tail. There's a lot of lamb's quarter. There's, um, hogweed I've noticed out in the fields, these, the, the warm summer weeds are the worst weeds that are pose the biggest threat. Oh, and ragweed, ragweed's one of the worst weeds. So the next step is after a big rainstorm, when you get a soaking in the ground, if you can get a, a crew of guys to go out there and hand pull the slough, the weeds come out really easily and you want to pull them out, shake all the soil off. And that's a great way to, uh, clean up your fields a little bit more, Mm-hmm. um, Cultivation, and then, and then for the actual plants, as far as the plants, sometimes if as long as you get you can get that plant like a a Joe Py weed, I, I never have to weed them or mm-hmm. um, heliopsis. You don't really have to weed them once that plant gets vigorously growing, and it will outcompete all the competition. So it's a, that's the next step is just keeping them clean until those plants get big enough to outcompete all the competition. And this is
0: the same as in your home garden too. If you have a home garden with native plants or you have a little pollinator garden at your park or at your job site that you're working on, it's the same thing. When the plants are little, you got to do a lot of weed control. And as they get bigger and a little more vigorous, they're going to shade out the weeds and and not let them come through. One
1: technique I do at my house or if I'm just planting, you know, native plants around the farm or around my house is I would get a, a, a little nursery flag or any type of marker. And so I'll like maybe three native plants in area i'll mark that area and i'll make sure i weed that area really well and you know so those plants get a chance to grow up and then then following year they're going to be big and flowering and gorgeous so
0: and do you do anything to the plants so that they produce more seed or or maintain height anything like that
1: so sometimes i'll mow. uh i'll mow some the asters, occasionally I'll mow the asters down. This is one of the things I learned. I used to mow pensum and digitalis. So I'd mow half the row of pen I, I used to mow all the pensamon digitalis at maybe like um, 15 inches high, thinking I would get way more seed. And then I was like, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not creating more seed. So then I mowed half of it and I realized, man, the mowing wasn't really helping out mm-hmm. at all. But then with, um, certain species like aster you can start mowing them in the beginning of the year. In our case, I know the reason I mow the asters is because I noticed the deer had been munching on the asters in the area the deer were grazing on the asters. They eventually had stopped grazing on them and though that section had way more seed and was flowering a lot better. Yeah, it's similar to
0: that uh, the Chelsea chop method that's popular with a lot of gardeners where they'll cut back especially asters goldenrods things that bloom in the fall um you'll cut them back once or twice over the course of the year and it keeps it lower it blooms a little bit later but uh you'll get a lot more branching and therefore more flower heads so mm-hmm. it's more from from a gardening perspective You get more flower heads from our perspective with some things you can get more seed um insects
1: can pose a problem like right now we have um aphids on our heliopsis Helianthoides, or that's ai uh, i'm i'm speaking uh, all the latin names. that's uh, a yeah. false sunflower and false the and digitalis you mentioned before that's that's Fox love beard tongue yep. so the um false sunflower gets these red aphids all over up and down the stems i see it in um, people's native gardens as well but we're about to you know that i've i've let it go before and it sucks kind of the life out of the flower and you'll have little flower and you won't you'll barely get any seeds so in that case we're going to use a uh, insecticidal soap to spray that. And we're going to do it at nighttime. So we're not affecting any of the bees. It's, it's kind of a shame that we do have to spray some of the things, but we literally would not get any seed if we didn't have to do some of that stuff.
0: Again, it's one of those like lesser to evil things where is it more important to let this one stand of flowers grow? Or is it more important that we can harvest a, a good crop and then have Get that seed out. That get the seed. Get the and then seed out to everybody. Have it on all these other places where you're going to have millions and millions of flowers across a much wider One area. One of the things
1: that, you know, I, it's reiterated every day to me is Mother Nature does not like monocultures. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a monoculture, a plant, she's going to throw an insect, a mold, uh, some type of disease at the plant to kind of control that, that monoculture. Mm-hmm. So
0: that's kind of the maintenance of it. Mm-hmm. Then it comes... It's time to collect the seed. The yeah, seeds yeah. finally ripened up. It's time to collect it. What are your processes there?
1: So usually when I'm looking, I'll check the seed to make sure it's ripe. So right now, Carrick's Lurida is in season. Um I'm not sure the common name, you know the common That's name.
0: uh that's Lurid Sedge. Lurid
1: sedge, all right. So Carrick's um so Lurid Sedge is in season right now. And uh so I'll go I'll go up to the plant and I'll grab some of the seed in my hand, and I'll kinda like Scrape it together or rough it up in my hand. I'll see if it's going to fall off the stem, nice. Because you want to, you want to harvest that seed when it's in the optimal stage, uh, mm. optimal stage to harvest. And it's one of the reasons
0: when Steve says optimal stage is that that's when it's more, it's going to be developed enough to germinate. Yeah. So th- so if over it's the years, developed, you might not be in a place over where the it years. I've learned
1: this too. Like, oh, we, we'll harvest it when it's young and let it after ripen. Well, you let it after ripen. And uh, you harvest it too young, and you let it after ripen. Well, your seed test is going to be horrible sometimes. Mm-hmm. So
0: if you do it a little bit too early or a little, yeah, well, not too late. If you do it too early, yeah. it won't be. There's a few. There's life.
1: a few seeds you can get away with it with uh, that technique, but just through my experience, and you want to you want to harvest that seed when Mother Nature is going to let it fall to the ground itself, or as close to that that stage as possible. So. I'll I'll rub that seed on my hand and I'll check it and make sure it's ready to go and then and the case of the Carax Lurda with this new combine we we tested it out yesterday it was like pumping out seed prior I can remember 3 4 years ago we'd be out there with uh, we call them kasangas or rice cutters which we still use all the time it's a little handheld
0: like sigh, basically yeah. and um, yeah it's they're pretty effective they're they're very effective but in the uh, hands
1: of in the hands of someone who yields it well you'll you could fill we'll get a a trash can and we'll start harvesting the seed. And um, we'll fill up trash cans with that seed. And then from there, you'll take your trash can. We have a dump trailer and we'll load up the dump trailer. And we'll just keep doing that until we're um, finished uh, Finished with that seed. In some cases, it'll take half half a day. In some cases, it'll take like two days to harvest a full field of seed. So it's very labor intensive. And then from there, we, uh, we'll take the dump trailer back to the nursery. By this time of year, We're usually done with uh, most of our production, so some of the greenhouses are open, and they're the perfect spot to dry seed. We turn the fans on. I can get an old sheet of greenhouse plastic, and I'll lay the seed out on there, and um, so that's the hardest part is probably taking the seed out of the dump trailer. You got about 200 pounds of heavy stems and seed, and we'll dump it out onto the uh, tarp in the greenhouse, and... From there, we'll spread it out nice and thin, so it's not too thick in certain areas. Otherwise, it'll get moldy, and you got to go in there for the next two or three days and flip it, and keep mm-hmm. flipping it, and keep flipping it, so it doesn't get moldy. Yeah. So the seed is basically naturally drying on the plant. Yeah.
0: But it's still not completely dry, and for from a storage perspective, um, now in nature, it's going to fall on the ground, and mm. it's really it's going to be eaten, start to decompose, or be in a place where it can germinate. Exactly. Uh, and sometimes it, if it's safe enough and it's in a more a cool moist place the germination process will s- it's not going to start germinating immediately but the stratification process will start right away uh we don't want that to happen because we want to preserve the seed until it's going to the job site that it's going to be planted at, and that's where that stratification process can mm-hmm. happen so we need to get it even drier than it would naturally which is why we have to Put it on these these tarps basically, and And just and let it dry and bake in the sun a little bit.
1: And to to clean it, um, the cleaning process is much easier when the seed is dry. In this case, there's certain cases um, with other seeds where you want it to be wet, and when it's wet, you can clean it easier. But and and I would say in ninety five percent of the application, you want your seed as dry as possible so you can clean it so it falls off the uh, the stems so the on comes off seeds with fluffy. You know, the fluffy seeds, the fluff part is called on. So to break the on off, the drier it is, the easier it'll be. Mm -hmm. So Steve mentioned that's what we did do was use or he
0: did do was use the hand cutters and he'd bring a crew of seven people uh, back in.
1: On the hottest days of summer, it was always (laughs) that's when we're collecting echinacea. I feel like on the hottest
0: day of the summer when we started this, it was probably I guess it was like 2014 or 2015 I started going to a lot of seed meetings and meeting a lot of these other people from Ernst Seed and Roundstone Seed and Prairie Moon and, and other places around the country uh, come like 2016, 2017. And um, I, some of these places use like big farm combines to harvest their seed. Have, they'll have a 60-acre field of, of uh, butterfly weed, which is Asclepias tuberosa. They'll have a 60-acre field and they're bringing in like a big farm combine, like you're going to harvest corn or soybeans or anything else to harvest that, that seed. Um, but we we have an acre plot of milkweed Mm. or a half acre plot of something. So we didn't need something that big. And I found out about these, uh, these, basically they're rice harvesters that they use in China and I guess Japan as well. And a lot of the, the Eastern Asian countries. And, um, there was some seed producers that were using that for their smaller, uh, lots of, of crops. And, um, the folks at Roundstone Seed, uh, they, they actually had a couple, and, uh, and they shared a lot of information about it. And they said, hey, we're looking to order another one, but we can fit three of them in a C box that they ship over from, from China. Um, so we'd like to have some other people who might be interested in getting one too so we can get three in the box and then instead of just R one. Cause, and then we'll split the shipping three ways. And uh, and so we said, you know what, that's probably what we wanted. This is 2019. said, hey, let's do that. It's going to save us a lot of time and – and, um, and eventually a lot of money. will make that process more efficient from start to finish. And uh, and they basically it was going to get delivered to Louisville, or just south of Louisville, Kentucky, where they are in Upton, Kentucky. They were going to retrofit it from being able to harvest rice to some more native uh, species, and then they were going to bring it up to uh, to uh, us in New Jersey. And, um, and it was, okay, this is going to be awesome. It's going to get delivered in June of 2020. Well, uh, here comes coronavirus in march of of 2020 and the factory that this was getting i guess made in was in wuhan china i'm pretty sure so uh that process got majorly slowed down uh so much that it finally got delivered uh just yesterday so we got to play with it for the first
1: time on it's gonna uh, save so much time (laughs) and energy after the after using the kasangas for so many years which we're still gonna have to use but Mm. You know, we're going to be able to ha- harvest Echinacea with it. We harvested the Carrick's Lurida with it. We're going to be able to harvest so many different species in a timely manner that's going to um, free up some time for me to grow even more species. That's one thing I wanted to touch on. One species I'm – and before I touch on that, I just want to give my brother credit for getting that. You know, if if I was in charge, I'd still have the kasanga in my hand every day. So I'm really thankful he found that rice harvester for oh, us. Oh, I'm
0: thankful I found it too because I, <laughs> I was like – if everyone else is using these, then or these for the same size that we're doing, then we should probably have one of these at some point. And there, the other part of it is that they're still very expensive. It was nearly like hundred thousand dollars for this machine um, when it's all said and done. It'll pay itself off, hopefully. but it's uh, it's something that yeah, it's gonna instead just from the the labor perspective, um, one that you don't need nearly as many people to collect that seed in a time efficient manner, and then two. It was a hard job where you're sending people out in 100 degrees and they're doing stuff with their hands in not the most ideal working conditions you're in mm. stuff that's wet or it's sticky it's you're in grass that's six feet tall and we're just collecting we're collecting one that
1: <laughs> there's one species that's called treadad ohioensis or Ohio spiderwort another name for it is cow slobber because when you're done harvesting it literally looks like you know, like a, a cow, cow went and slobbered, slobbered all over. and licked you all over. Yeah. yeah. You're covered and you have to, you have to shower and change your, your clothes. So yeah, if you're collecting a little bit, oh yeah, it's no, no big deal.
0: It's not that bad. But when you're spending a day out collecting this stuff, it can be pretty rough. Um, so yeah, we were really grateful that, that we got our hands on that. And shout gonna... out to the
1: guys at Roundstone. They were great. They were so, it was a, uh, I think they're young guys. They're all 22 of age who came out and they were just showed us how to use the combine. They're great guys. So thank you.
0: Yep. Yeah. The folks at Roundstone have been, like I mentioned before, both of the folks at Ernst and Roundstone have been incredibly helpful. They've looked at us and said, in, where it could be a sense of competition and said, well, let's make this friendly competition. Similarly, how we've done in the native plant nursery sphere as well, uh, as we mentioned in those business and native plant podcasts we've done before. Um, they've been great to us. Even before, I wish we were able to do more actual business together and, and not just have every time we get together be be social. It seems like, but um, so that is covers a lot of the collection process. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned then we start to dry it, and then we have to clean it. Uh, I guess
1: first, why do we have to clean it? Well, you want to uh, have proper purity of the seed. We want to make sure that you know we don't want to send out junk to everybody. You gotta you gotta take the sticks and stems out of it. There could be other weed seeds in there that, um. Trickle in sometimes, mm-hmm. so we want to make sure we get them out. Um, yeah, this,
0: I guess I'll include. There's um, wh- if you're buying seed, especially if you're buying large amounts of seed from from like a wholesale side of things, it's harder to do on a retail side of things. But you want to look for a number that says pure live seed mm-hmm. um, because that'll tell you how much of the seed is actually like going to germinate or has the potential to germinate it gets a little funny with natives because something like milkweed has to go through a stratification period. So when we go and get a seed test done only 1% is going to germinate right away, but maybe realistically like 98% of it is, has the ability to germinate and needs that cold, moist stratification that you mm-hmm. don't get when you do a seed test. So, um, so it gets a little different with native species versus corn and soybeans and grass seed and all that. But especially when you're looking at like grass seed, and you go to Home Depot or Tractor Supply, that's where you actually want to look at the the label on the back and see. It'll say inert matter. It'll say inert matter, and I'm I'm telling you when you look at at the the that, that like the bags of grass seed at Home Depot, Tractor Supply, Lowe's, those places. The inert matter is super high, and it's
1: all because of the seed coat,
0: typically. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like,
1: the seed coating they put on there to help it germinate Speaking faster. of the bags of seed there, I saw them marketing a native a North yeah. Atlantic seed mix, and they had maybe two or three yeah. out of the 20 species There's, in there that were native. there be 20 species, and it's, like, lanceleaf tick seed. And, I was shaking uh, my head.
0: Yeah, like, echinacea, and then you have a lot of, um, like, California poppy, and I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. I always laugh when I look at them, too, and and it's one of the things I've, like, Wanted to do a video where I pick up a bag and then break down every species. This is from oh yeah, this is your north like North American wildlife mix or East Coast wild or wildflower mix. And oh, this is from China. This is from Siberia. This is yeah. <laughs> this is from here. This is from here. And just go down the list and say oh, this one's actually native here, but who knows where the seed was actually grown? Yeah. Um. So yeah, but that's one thing to pay attention to is look at what the the purity is. Look at what the germination percentage is figure out what that pure live seed rating is, a good native seed purveyor is probably going to sell it to you as pure live seed and not as bulk seed. And that's not a crawl. Like I can't say everyone who sells it pure live seed is a good seed purveyor and everyone who doesn't isn't. But um, a lot of the good ones, in my opinion, tend to do that where, and what that means is if you say, Hey, I want a pound of, of Lanceleaf tick seed seed, I'm going to get one pound of seed that has the potential to germinate. Now it's up to me to make sure it germinates, that it got that stratification, it was put in the right spot, but um, but they're basically guaranteeing that. So that might mean, oh, I ordered a pound, but I actually got a pound and a quarter, a pound and a half, because they've mm-hmm. made up for that difference, with. and you're getting a pound of seed
1: that'll actually germinate, and they've. You're gonna inert pound matter pure live and all seed. that is, is kind of in there too, that's why you're getting more. Let me give a, the example, this is another example with Carrick's Lurida. Carrick's Lurida has a husk around the outside of it, and that counts... As pure live seed, if you leave the husk on. But if you take that husk off, it counts as inert matter. So, because it's you, no
0: longer part of the seed anymore.
1: So, let's just say we were selling a pound, we would clean our carrots all the way to the inside kernel, I guess you could call it. And,
0: um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you will, you'd clean it to the inside kernel. He's getting a big phone call. I can cover yeah. it from there. You'd clean it to the the inside kernel. Um, which in some cases, in some species, is actually damaging to the seed, and you don't want to do that. Um, but then those husks that were left, the what used to be around that kernel, uh, would then count as inert matter. And uh, where technically you have a, a I don't want to say better product, but a more clean product in a way, um, where if you just left that outside husk on, then uh, then a lot of times it's... It's now it's attached to the seed. It's still part of the seed. So it, it's funny how, how it works that way. In one way, it's because it's no longer attached to the seed. It's not considered part of the seed, and it's inert matter, where when it's attached to the seed, it's considered...
1: Same thing with the on. Same thing with the, the feather seed. of yeah. the seed. Yeah. Some people take the feathers off. Some people keep the feathers on. I've heard leaving the feather on the seed, a.k.a. the awn, um, actually helps seed to soil contact. Mm-hmm.
0: It'll help with seed to soil contact on some stuff. And, um, and in some cases, if that seed, say you collected a little bit early and you take the on off a W N on off, mm-hmm. um, what it'll do is actually sometimes pull part of that seed out too. whether mm-hmm. it's like some of the, what it needs to germinate. And now you have seed that won't be able to germinate cause you've actually destroyed it. So there's all kinds of stuff that goes into it. It's stuff we're, we're learning. <laughs> and, uh, And there's just a lot, lot, lot that goes into it. But talk a little bit more. We were talking about the cleaning process.
1: I could talk about Um, the, uh, yeah, I'll talk about the cleaning process a little bit more. So after the greenhouse, the seed's all dry. Then you got to check it again. Make sure it's ready for, we call it a thresher or a hammer mill. We'll um, put the seed through a hammer mill to break it up into a a flowable um, consistency. And once you, which can be, take a lot of time. Thank God for the combine because that's going to help out with that process. And then from there, we'll put it through a clipper machine. A clipper machine basically is a series of screens. You have a a large screen on top where your seed can fall through, but it'll collect your big garbage. And you have a smaller screen on the bottom, which your seed will not go through, but it'll filter out some of the dust. And then, um, so your big seed or your your, uh, top screen will filter out the garbage and your seed falls through. And then it'll hit the screen that filters out the dust and it'll fall through into another compartment of the clipper machine, which exposes it to the air. And the air will blow out some of the finer um, garbage and light garbage, where your seed is heavier.
0: The seed's heavy, this is light. And while it might not, it'll fit in between those two screens, mm -hmm. it's not something you, it's not a desirable part that you're trying to collect still.
1: Exactly, so you have small garbage, big garbage, and then air garbage coming out. And you can use all those different areas um, to clean different seeds. So you might be able to clean a really light fluffy seed and blow it out the air trap or you might be able to mm-hmm. filter out a seed in the really small screen somehow. but in a perfect world, um, you'll get clean seed coming out the bottom the bottom of the machine off those screens.
0: Yeah, so and it's again going back to like this old farm technology and how amazing it is. Some
1: of these cl- one of the clippers <laughs> we use that all the everyone loves to use the most is from like the 50s.
0: Yeah, and and they're made of wood. Like there's some Old a little rickety. bit of rubber there. They look like man, this is an antique, and it is an antique, but it still works, and it works
1: really well. So, um, from there we have a you- uh, we have one more oh, yeah. process that it goes through. Then um, after that, we have a gravity table. It's called a Forsberg gravity table, and uh, we'll slowly trickle the seed through this gravity table, and the heavy, the nice heavy seed will. Gra- um, gravitate towards the upper portion of the machine and dump into a bin up at the top in the light chaff and um, maybe the seeds that aren't so viable and don't have a- an actual seed or germ in the middle full. of them.
0: So while it's, if you put it on a scale, it's going to, we don't have a scale that's accurate enough to mm-hmm. measure the difference in weight. The gravity aspect of it, this, it's basically almost like an air hockey table where the air is blowing up from these little little holes on the board there, and but it's ridges too. So... It, as the air blows, it kind of makes it hover like an air hockey puck, and the seed is hovering, hovering, hovering until it gets to a point where it's too heavy and it settles in that ridge um, or in that valley in between the two ridges, and then it'll slowly work its way down into the baskets below. Mm-hmm. And on stuff that's – this is my the coolest thing, in my opinion, with the gravity table. On stuff where you have – a lot, like the seed is really dark – and the, the, oh, you see, is really de, light. You see fine like line the fine line, like color lines where stuff is, Oh, Oh, the seed is, that's where it's starting is right here. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that's pretty cool to see when, when that happens. So, um, so from there basically we bag it up and, and put it into cold
1: storage. We'll weigh it, bag it up and put it into cold storage. We'll tell Noel our seeds saleswoman, how much, a, how much weight we got. And then mm-hmm. she'll take a sample from there. With a seed, we have a seed trier, mm-hmm. um, so you're not pulling seed off the bottom. We're not top. pulling Seed it's, off the top. It's a trier. It gives an even distribution of. A, it's basically a, a long probe seed. with a lot of
0: holes in it. So and you stick it into your your bag or your your bin, and it'll fill in the holes all throughout this. Well, I guess there's. It comes in a sheath, so mm-hmm. the holes aren't exposed right away. You stick it in, you turn it, and then the holes are open yeah, and yeah. the seed funnels in. So you're getting a sample through from throughout the entire thing. So there's no chance of even if it's settled, you're getting seeds from throughout the whole thing so you have a better sample. And we'll
1: send it to uh, – I forget the name of the – There's a couple
0: of different labs we've used. The one we use the most is uh, is called Native Seed Testing. They're out of uh, South Dakota. and They um, check for
1: the germ. They check for – what else do they? Uh, basically, test?
0: You, we do a tetrazoleum test, which basically is a test where they use a dye and stain the – I think it's the carbohydrates in the seed. And then they can go and say, okay – I'm looking at this sample through a microscope and I can see I have a hundred seeds here and 50 of them, the dye was absorbed into. So that means that 50 of them have enough carbohydrates to germinate. And that's a quick test that they can kind of give us feedback and say, okay, it looks like you're about 50% or have the potential to germinate from there. Well, and I, I guess even before that, they'll do a purity test where they'll, I don't even know exactly how they do it, but they tell us how much is actual seed how much is inert matter? How much is different kinds of seed? They'll identify what kinds of seed it is. So mm-hmm. they'll say, "Oh, you had morning glory seed in your in your carrots, or or you had um, ragweed seed in there." And those are ones are like, "Oh, we don't, those, those aren't good." And there's some other stuff. Where some, you'll have yeah. There's some seeds junk that are seed the... in your and
1: so and the there's mix is going to go in. So is, uh, like I, I believe bindweed is banned. I think. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: uh, the one that's that's really bad, especially in the Midwest, is pigweed. There's oh, some yeah. uh, what's it, Chenopodiums, I think is what it's called. Um, but there's some that the have thistle. become. Um, I'm trying to remember the common name of it. But uh, there's one in particular that gets really tall and it's becoming Roundup resistant. So that's one where if we find there's and there's multiple different kinds of pigweed, mm-hmm. but if we find pigweed in a sample, we'll pay for another test to identify is it this one
1: really bad pigweed or is it another one where it's not so bad? Um, my favorite, um, seed test is just grab a handful of seed and sprinkle it onto a propagation tray and see if it comes up.
0: And that's, that's what they'll do next after they figure out what the purity is and kind of have it broken down into how much is actual seed. Um, they'll do a germination test and see how much it actually germinated and how much is, has the potential to germinate, how much just was never going to germinate. So, um, and then they'll basically send us those results back. I think each test is probably like $150, maybe more. So for each species we do, which mm. is nearly a hundred different species that we have, um, we're paying that much just to get that test done. And uh, and then we have to do it every nine months. Mm. Uh, for New Jersey standards, it's every nine months we have to have the seed retested. So we hope we sell out of it before the nine months is up so we don't have to do it again. Um and yeah, so that's, uh, and then from there we can set our pricing because we know, okay, we collected 250 pounds of, I should have used a nice round number for math. We collected a hundred pounds of, of a certain species and 75% of it is, or it's 75% pure and it's, uh, and it's 50%. Um, it has the potential to germinate. So you end up doing your math and finding out, okay, we well, it's only the like 30, 37 and a half percent, it has the ability to germinate. You've factor in all the costs that went into it. So all the time it took to plant it, uh, the cost of the land, um, all the time it took to harvest, maintain it, all that kind of stuff, all that money gets siphoned in. There's some miscellaneous costs that we add to, across the board. And then we'll come out and say, well, it costs us this much to produce it. So we're going to charge mm-hmm. this much. And a lot of times, then we want to compare it to the going rate. Average and see market what, price. What everyone else is charging for it. So, we don't want to be significantly higher or significantly lower. So we will bring it up to uh, to similar price to where everyone else is based on our calculations of cost. And then, uh, yeah, from there, it goes to our in our seed cooler where we keep it at 50 degrees, 50% humidity. And, and that's basically to keep it dry enough that it's not going to mold, but not so dry that it's dried out and it will no longer germinate. Mm-hmm. And, um, a lot of times you'll have it in like a breathable bag, so that moisture in, moisture out. It's it's gonna stay the same, and um and then yeah, then there's prefer a job site.
1: Yeah, hopefully from there we get a call from one of you listeners or someone <laughs> someone out there, and the, uh, we could ship it out to a happy customer. So that's basically the whole process. Mm-hmm. I had a couple other questions
0: just about you personally. And I guess the first one is, do you use native plants in your home landscape or anything like that? Oh, yeah.
1: I love native plants. Um, I would say 90% of uh, my garden outside of my house is native plants. I make a lot of different teas. I make different tinctures out of them. I make bug spray. I have, a uh, you know, menard all over my house. Sometimes I'll just crunch up some menard and rub it on my skin if the mosquitoes are biting me. Um, I drink it. I drink echinacea all the time. Aronia, I I have aronia and elderberries. I make a, a iced tea out of them. So I mainly I ingest a lot of the the native plants. Yeah,
0: that reminds me. I want there's you can make a lemonade out of um, uh, what's it? Rue's one of the oh sumacs.
1: yeah the sumac.
0: I, and I ha- I saw some staghorn sumac. I know you can do. So I'll I suck saw on some the, back I'll suck on I'm The berries grab them.
1: they're 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 delicious. Yeah. They're very sour and tart. Yeah, they make a great. I've used them in in lemonade or kind of a tea. I've boiled them before. And, yep. They're they're great with some honey. Yeah, you need to get in touch with one of our listeners, Alyssa
0: Lewis, who's on our last episode because she does a lot of the teas and tea mixtures and all mm-hmm. that. So she's she's into that. I think you'd have a lot in common there.
1: Yeah, I do a lot of foraging. I love, you know, eating our native plants yeah. just as much as I love growing them.
0: What are some of the other ways that you enjoy nature in the outdoors?
1: There's a lot of different ways. So I was just touching on it. I love foraging. Um, I do a lot of diving. Um, spear fishing is one of my favorite things to do. I like growing, as much as I love growing stuff, I love being in the water, immersed in the water, and uh, it's probably the most sustainable way of fishing. You're t- harvesting one fish at a time. There's no bycatch. Um, and probably my favorite- You're really picking out yeah, the
0: exact one
1: that you want. Probably my favorite thing in life and why I'm on this earth, I love to go out and Harvest a fish, come back, pull some a few things out of my garden, go into the woods and maybe find a couple mushrooms or or different plants I can incorporate in my meal, and I love cooking it up for my family or friends, and you know making a big meal out of it and sharing it with everybody. That's uh, gives me a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, I've
0: been the beneficiary of a lot of the the fishing stuff you catch too. Yep. Um, there's not – I don't think there's many things I've had that are better than those mussels we pulled off the reef off uh, the Jersey coast that, that was one the time. best, yeah. That was awesome. We had
1: just got our scuba diving certifications, and we went to this wreck called the Magnolia Wreck about eight miles out of um, Long Beach Island, um, the Barnegat Inlet, and we got to do our certification dive there, and we, we, we caught a lobster, and we got a couple of uh, a couple bags of mussels, and, man, they, they were, were the they tastiest. They were probably
0: – I'm trying to think um, – probably – even bigger than like a matchbox car. Yeah. And then they, just, they were just the so, palm of your hand. Yeah. They were just so like buttery and juicy on their own. And, uh, they just kind of like melted. It was unlike any other muscles I've had, but, um, do you have any inspirations when it comes to like nature and the outdoors?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. Well, I would say, you know, we, like I said earlier in the podcast, we weren't allowed to watch cartoons now on the Uh, cartoon channel was locked so I'd be watching Animal Planet and man I fell in love with the crocodile hunter he was my hero growing up I watched Jeff Kerwin a lot Um, another person who's inspired me is Bill Young Mm -hmm. Um, later in my life listening to Doug Tallamy talk about oak trees that's he's just helped me find a whole nother realm of appreciating native plants and nature and then uh, you know our dad he's done a lot to teach us everything and he's helped me appreciate nature and there's a lot of different people who I've met through Pineland's nursery in the field who really inspire me. That's uh, I, a good I, uh, I gotta say there's this one guy in college I really wish I kept in touch with him Hunter Audrey he taught me all about foraging and the importance of like you know native plants and taking this part and leaving that part of a something that I forage. Yeah,
0: that can be your homework. Is the the text hunter? I know I need <laughs> to reach out to
1: Hunter. He's a he's a he's a wonderful guy. And he's
0: in this field. Or no, I yeah, he works the, in
1: Ohio. He last I talked to him, he was working in Ohio for. Uh,
0: There's like the it was like the mad scientist ecological yeah, something yeah. or other. At some point, I don't know if he's still working there or not. But he, he's a botanist, though. Yeah, no, he was a, he was a cool guy. I remember meeting him a couple times. Um, and the question we always end with, end with is
1: what is your favorite native plant? Can I give three of them? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I'm going to give a tree, a shrub and, oh man, it's so hard to choose from flower. Like everyone who knows me will tell me like, I always have a different flower I say is my favorite, but as far as trees go, I love, I love, uh, swamp white oaks are mm-hmm. my favorite tree. Um, I planted a bunch of them in my yard. There's a huge one across the street that's got to be, like, three, maybe 400 years old. It's it's a massive swamp white oak, and we just collected the seeds off of this year. Great for – Doug Tallamy says, like, these uh, – he says the white oak hosts 500-some species. I like to think the swamp white oak does, too. Um, as far as shrubs go, I love – I'm starting to gravitate a lot towards aronia just because it's supposed to have, um, or chokeberry, Photinia melanocarpa. Mm -hmm. They are supposed to have the most antioxidants out of any berry. They're super healthy for you. I think they're beautiful when they're in flower. You'll never see so many pollinators in your life. They're, they're abundant with the pollinators. Um, and they have nice fall color as well. Um, as far as flowers go, like I said I have a lot but right now Scelopius tuberosa is in bloom and man orange is my favorite color there's not many native species with that bright orange color and it just I love it and and of course it's a host species for the monarch butterfly so doesn't get much better than that I wish we could grow an acre size field of field of it or a yeah. 60 a 60 <laughs> acre <laughs> yeah. field of I've it I've
0: seen pictures of what like urn seed has out in in uh, just north of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania and it's like Holy crap! That's a lot of orange that's out there. It's really, really impressive. That's um, actually a, an Instagram page that that I think everyone should follow just to see a little bit more behind the scenes. On uh, in addition to our own Instagram page um, and Roundstone's uh, yeah. social media, you see a little bit of behind the scenes on how this happens. And it's just even though nature doesn't want monocultures,
1: seeing monocultures of native
0: plants are also pretty impressive when uh, when you see it in mass like
1: that. I don't want to say nature doesn't want monocultures because usually when you're out. In a in nature, you'll you will see like a monoculture of um, a species grown together. Mm-hmm. I just feel like if it gets out of hand, you know, maybe she tries to control with an insect infestation mm-hmm. or or something like that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now the very last thing we do is let our guest uh, kind of give a final. Actually, we all give like a final thought. Kind of surmise. You can plug something. You can promote something. You can surmise some thoughts. You can just get something. I'm gonna on your promote chest.
1: something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing I've been thinking about saying this whole podcast is. We, thanks to, with the help of Emil DeVito, um, I'm not sure what organization he's, he's with. He's with the,
0: him. what's it, the Land Conservancy in New
1: Jersey, I think? He's pa- he's super passionate. He's another inspiration. As soon um, as I started to say it, I f- started to forget. But Emil <laughs> put us onto a wild stand, one of the only known wild stands of uh, lupine, which is grows kind of like Baptisia australis. It has this... Uh, Frozen a bean, and so we're able to collect some seed off of that, and we're excited to add that into production this year. Hopefully we can get – I know it's difficult to grow, but hopefully we can get that into production. I can plant that out in the field, and we can get you some native wild um, source of uh, lupine. A lot of people claim yeah. they have wild lupine, but this is a true native source from one of the only patches in New Jersey. Yeah.
0: I messed up. Emil is not from the Land Conservancy – of New Jersey. He's from uh, New Jersey Conservation Foundation. Uh, two organizations I mix mix up a lot. As soon as I started to say it, I'm like, I don't think that's right. Let me look it up. But yeah, Emil is a great guy. You can go back and listen to him. I forget exactly what episode number. It was probably I want to say right about maybe 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in that range. And that was probably the most, if you're an Emil DeVito fan, that's the most toned down you'll probably ever <laughs> hear him be.
1: He was as polite and courteous as I think I've ever heard him be. One of my good friends had a... Uh... He had a project and I think it was his dissertation in college where he did a project about tracking snakes and we would be out in the field with Emil and we had this like radio tracker. We'd be listening on headphones and one of the snakes name was uh, Blueberry Phil and we'd be out trying to find Blueberry Phil all the time, record his location. But yeah, I think Blueberry Phil's still around. Last I talked to Emil, he's a pine Mm -hmm. snake.
0: Yeah, no, the stuff he's doing with pine snakes is really awesome um i guess my my wrap-up thought isn't gonna it's also gonna plug something and that's uh if you're into just an entertaining instagram follow i'd follow my brother he is what you're just at nature boy steve right nature boy steve um you'll get to see some of the spearfishing videos he's always catching critters and and uh if if you were into the crocodile hunter who would just jump in and and grab something that's what steve does a lot of and But it's also has some native plant stuff in there. It's a a mishmash of all kinds of things that you're doing. So um, this is probably going to be the hardest part of the show for me because this is where Fran and I go back and forth and do our our ending credits. (laughs) But I'm going to have to do it all by myself. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to my brother, Steve. Uh, For more information, visit his Instagram page, which is at Nature Boy Steve, or you can uh, visit... Uh, our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group, uh, our website, www.pinelandsnursery.com. Um, but it really encourage you to check out Steve's Instagram page for sure. So thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. Uh, that's not a good lead into Fran's part because I'm saying it too. But uh, <laughs> I'll give a big thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you can see music. If you want to see them, uh, live music is back. You can see them at EPM Live in Philly. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at at Pinelands Nursery. Facebook is backslash Pinelands Nursery NJ. Instagram is at Pinelands Nursery. We also have a Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet Instagram page as well. Um, our YouTube channel is also Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we have a question and answer line as well, which I I don't know. I haven't talked to Fran to know if it's been busy or, or quiet. I um, would have found out today, but uh If you call that number, you can ask a question. And if we choose your question, we can answer it live on the air. And uh, that number is 215-346-6189. And we always read those on the buzz. Uh, Let's not forget that Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. That has been just growing and growing, leaps and bounds. And there's just so many awesome conversations that happen there without a lot of the negativity that you find in so many other Native Plant groups. I'm really proud of that. That was our mission with that group, and I'm glad that now we're twelve hundred members strong and we still have that same, uh, same lack of, uh, of meanness going on. So you can buy shirts and listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplants.healthyplanet.com. Right at the top of our website, there's a banner that will take you to our Teespring store. Uh, all the money for the shirts for the next couple weeks are going to all the profits that are, are made from the shirts are going to Bowman's Hill. A wildflower center. So, if you want to support them, go buy a shirt. Um, and uh, if you want to listen to the podcast, you can f- do it right there at the website. Or you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever consume your podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, we really appreciate it. If you leave a five star review, uh, and if you do a little write up, I give you a-, a plug on our Buzz episodes. Um, those reviews are are gold when it comes to Apple Podcast, and that's what helps boost us up the charts. And the higher up we are on the charts, the more people are going to hear this native plant message. With that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. Keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast, presented by
1: Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.